Have you been outbirding? Outbirding with Field Guides is the new birding video series you've been hearing about. The latest episodes from Lima, Peru, Arizona, Brazil, Cape May, and the Prairie Potholes include adventure, conversations with fascinating bird people, and field pointers. Remember, even when you're at home, you can always go outbirding with Field Guides. Join the fun at outbirding.com ABA. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. Um, we haven't talked much about bird names for birds here lately. That movement to change honorific eponyms, birds named after people in the birding world. It is still ongoing, though we have sort of entered a protracted wait and see phase. Uh, there has been some movement to that end, and I, I sort of want to update people with how things are going. When we last left this ornithological soap opera, the North American Classification Committee of the American Ornithological Society, which as you may or may not know, is the body responsible for changing bird names, changing bird common names, uh, they sort of put off indefinitely deciding any of the many, many name change proposals that they received late last year. Uh, I can tell you that there were a lot, a fallout of bird name proposals if you will, and not the colloquial incorrect use of the term, but a legitimate sort of high island squall line fallout of bird name change proposals. The AOS Diversity and Inclusion Committee has spent several months speaking to various stakeholders in the bird name issue, uh, including the American Birding Association, and they slash we are coming together next week, April 16th, for a community congress that will be public, I assume, for those interested, it will be at 1.45 p.m. Eastern Time. I will include the link in the next episode. I don't have it now. I hope to have it by then. So consider this sort of a, a heads up. The ABA will have a presence, though at this point it's not clear who that will be. Uh, either ABA President Jeff Gordon, birding editor Ted Floyd, or, or yours truly. All of us have been involved to varying degrees on this issue. Uh, also present will be Jordan Rutter. And Gabriel Foley, if you are a regular listener, you know them, particularly Jordan. They are sort of the primary voices for bird names for birds, though not by any means the only voices involved in that website, in that movement. So it'll be interesting to see how this goes. Quite a bit of time is blocked off, which seems appropriate, given the long period of stasis we've been at for a few months. So, you know, obviously there's a lot to say, but things are moving at long last, it promises to be a relevant conversation in the birding world as we head into spring. On the show this week, I'm excited to welcome one of my favorite nature writers and speakers to talk about his brand new book about bird migration. Scott Widensall is a researcher, a writer, a great advocate for birds and bird science. And his new book, A World on the Wing, The Global Odyssey of Migratory Birds, is, so far, it's only April, on my short list of the best bird books of the year. Scott joins me to talk about that amazing book right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of March, beginning of April, 2021. I have one bird to talk about this week, but it is a really good one. Prospect Park in the middle of Brooklyn, New York City was the epicenter of a great rarity and bird identification festival this week with the discovery of an odd Martin by one Doug Goachfeld the afternoon of April Fool's Day, funnily enough. The bird was relatively small, which suggested one of the vagrant Martins, perhaps Cuban, which has only been recorded once in the ABA area in Florida in 1895, 
or Caribbean, which has not yet been confirmed in the AVA area. These two species, along with the poorly documented Sinaloa martin of western Mexico, are frequently grouped together as snowy-bellied martins, an oddly evocative name for that group of species, uh, because in many plumages the birds show bright white underparts as opposed to the more pale gray of our familiar purple martins. Uh, it should be noted that both Cuban and Caribbean are reported somewhat regularly in South Florida, and photos have even been taken of birds that have been reported as Cuban or Caribbean martin, but owing to the difficulty of separating those two species, none of them have been confirmed by the State Records Committee, though either or both have almost certainly occurred before. Uh, to add to the confusion, a martin found dead at the base of a bell tower on the campus of Western Carolina University in Western North Carolina could be Sinaloa martin, or at least cannot be disproven at this point. So these birds have shown up in the United States before, at least theoretically. I say this all to make clear that the identification of these tropical prognia martins is uh, absurdly difficult. And so it is with equal parts trepidation and relief that consensus for this Brooklyn bird is currently gathering around a fourth species of tropical prognus swallow, the gray-breasted martin, which is widespread in the neotropics from Mexico all the way to Argentina. Uh, one subspecies of it is actually a long-distance austral migrant. You know, so those are southern hemisphere migrants that go north in the southern winter. And it is currently fall in the Southern Hemisphere. This would be a time when one could expect a bird to kind of overshoot. Uh, I haven't seen a ton of discussion about subspecies, but that seems plausible to me. Gray-breasted martin is on the ABA checklist by virtue of two South Texas records from, and I am not making this up, 1880 and 1889. So it's been a while. And I don't believe those were living birds. So this might as well be a first ABA record in spirit, if not in practice. Interestingly enough, both of those were spring records, one from late April and another from mid-May. So maybe gray-breasted martin in New York City. If the bird cannot be identified, it's not because there haven't been a ton of excellent photos taken of it. It's because prognia martins are, are a bit of a pain. That is your rare bird focus for this week. For all other interesting birds seen, recently check out the rare bird alert at aba.org slash rba every Friday, or you can join the ABA rare bird alert group in Facebook, or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. Every once in a while, I have a guest on this podcast that doesn't need much of an introduction. This week might be one of them, but I'll, I'll give it to you anyway. Uh, Scott Widensall is a bird researcher and a prolific nature writer, the author of more than 30 books, mostly about birds. He first tackled bird migration with 2000's Living on the Wind. That book was a Pulitzer Prize finalist, so it is very exciting to see him come back to the topic with a new book, A World on the Wing, The Global Odyssey of Migratory Birds, out very recently. He's with me to talk about it and bird migration, which is a topic that is very much on the minds of birders right now. Uh, welcome, Scott. Congratulations on the new book. Well, thank you very much, Nate. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, you know, I think people are, are certainly going to look at these two books, Living on the Wind and A World on the Wing, as sort of a, a set. Uh, what has changed in the years between them that made A World on the Wing something that you felt like you had to do? Well, and, and actually, that's a really good point. I mean, in some, in some respects, A World on the Wing functions as a bit of a sequel to Living on the Wind, mm -hmm. because we've learned so much about bird migration in the last 20 years. I mean, our, our understanding of 
the science um, behind bird migration of you know the, the physiology, the navigation and orientation has really just exploded. Um, yeah, you know, we've got absolutely. these you know this incredible miniaturization of tracking technology, mm-hmm. um, which you know some of which I've been privileged to work with myself in the field. It's just it's just increased our our understanding of what's going on with birds. You know, big data like weather radar and eBird um, is giving us an opportunity to you know, to, to, to map and plot bird migration almost in real time at hemispheric scales, yeah. which we've, we've never had before. Um, and of course, all of this is happening at a time when migratory bird populations are at a really critical state. And so mm-hmm. it was also an opportunity to, to, to look um, at a global landscape of, of migratory bird conservation. Living on the wind really focused just on the Western hemisphere. Mm-hmm. And with a world on the wing, I, I, I was looking at it uh, from a global perspective. So, you know, it really seemed like the perfect time to, to return to a, a subject that has been, you know, central to both my personal and professional lives since <laughs> about as early as I can remember. Yeah. Living on the wind was sort of written from the perspective of uh, an interested, informed bystander. And now you're sort of someone that is actively doing a lot of the field work that you write about, um, crunching the numbers, becoming somewhat you know, intimately involved in the lives of these birds. How has your own involvement in bird research um, changed the way that you think about migration? Yeah, because that's that's right. That's the other the other part of this of this new book is it's kind of my own my own journey, as you say, from somebody who is a, a passionately interested outsider to somebody who has you know thanks to the fact that ornithology has always been incredibly welcoming of yes non non academic um, people with with you know uh, you know superb high nerd level um, <laughs> engagement in the subject. It's sort of unique in the sciences in that uh, in that sense. It really is. I mean, there's a couple of others, you know, astronomy, maybe botany mm-hmm. that that have have are similarly welcoming, but I think ornithology really stands stands apart for that. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's been um, it's been an incredible opportunity for me over the last twenty or twenty five years to get more and more um, directly involved in in the field migration in the, in the migration research in the field and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you said something about numbers crunching. I have to say here, I am not a statistics person. The, <laughs> the reason I, the reason I, you know, a, avoided getting a science degree in college, um, is because oh my god, they expected me to do mathematics. Yeah, um, I feel that. Know, actually. Yeah. Um, so, but the you know the great thing about science is it's so collaborative, and the and the projects I'm involved in are enormously collaborative projects. So we you know we've got the people with the with the math and the and the uh, statistics background, I, I get to mm-hmm. do the fun grunt work out in the field. You know, putting geolocators right. on birds and GPS transmitters on snowy owls and things like that. Yeah, so. yeah. The, the book is sort of a, a series of, of interconnected essays, sort of focusing on a different place and a different bird. Um, was it was it difficult to narrow these stories down? And and did you have in mind the ways in which each species that you focus on sort of highlights a, a different lens to look at migration through? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, 10,500 species of birds in the world. And, you know, many of them are are not just migrants, but epic migrants. And yeah. all of them have amazing stories to tell. But, you know, I wanted I wanted to talk about a number of big themes, you know, that, as I said, you know, are, are deepening understanding of the science behind migration and how birds do the astonishing things they do. And so, you know, there are certain species that rise to the top. I mean, some of the the long distance migrant shorebirds yeah. that just do, you know, godwits in particular, you know, Hudsonian godwits migrating from the southern tip of South America up to the Canadian subarctic and Alaska, mm-hmm. and bar godwits going from Alaska to New Zealand and up through the Yellow Sea and 
China and the Koreas, um, you know, several species of old world swifts that <laughs> don't land for 10 months at a stretch. They spend yeah, 10 months, story, yeah. yeah, 10 months <laughs> on the wing, um, you know, just, just ab- absolutely flabbergasting stuff. I mean, every, every time we think we have, you know, kind of limbed out the limits of what a migratory bird can do, we discover there's some species of bird that just blows right past that. I don't. I don't think we have a clue yet of what the true physiological limits of bird migration are. And of course, then there are other species that that speak to certain particular conservation challenges that are facing mm-hmm. migratory birds, whether it's climate change or habitat loss or illegal killing. You know, so for example, you know the the spoon-billed sandpiper, which is yes, you know, one of the most charismatic birds in the world. Um, you know, is the poster child for what's happening on the Yellow Sea in China and the Koreas, where you know the the world's most extensive um, tidal wetlands, tidal mudflats. Um, you know, on which you know eleven, twelve, thirteen million migratory shorebirds in the whole East Asian Australasian flyway depend. You know, sixty or seventy percent of those tidal flats have been destroyed um, yeah. in the last couple of decades, and so, you know, you have this this tiny little bird with this bizarro bill that breeds in a tiny little area in the Russian Far East and winters in Southeast Asia, and depends absolutely and completely on the tidal flats of of the Yellow Sea, and has really driven a lot of the the conservation focus on on that region, and and providing you know this kind of ridiculously cute little umbrella for all these other species that depend upon the Yellow Sea. Um, you know, so, you know, there was absolutely no way that I wasn't going to be traveling over to, <laughs> to the Yellow Sea to try to find a, a spoon-billed sandpiper, which, as it turns out, is not a given. <laughs> There's only yeah. 400 of them in the world, and I did not find one. That is, um, that is a, such an interesting aspect of it, because we're talking, you know, spatially, you know, this enormous range that these birds are are taking advantage of all the way from, as you say, Southeast Asia to the Russian Far East. And, and these birds are so tiny and they're on this landscape, hidden on this landscape. It makes you realize how easy it is to lose these birds or to, to have these sort of great mysteries still, you know, out there about them to look at even in, you know, the 21st century. Oh, absolutely. Because they're, they're just so hard to find. Right. And in fact, you know, we know from the numbers of spoon-billed sandpipers that, um, are detected on the breeding grounds in the, in the Russian Far East, um, and the numbers that have been detected at different wintering areas in in Southern Asia that we mm-hmm. have not found all of the wintering sites. There are right. there are still right. there are still unaccounted for spoonies out there. Um, you know, we just I mean, think about how little we still know. Yeah. about what's going on, especially about you know pelagic bird migration. Yeah. We don't even know how many species there are. You yeah, know, you can yeah. still get you know these these absolute you know gobsmacking discoveries like a Tahiti petrel showing off showing up you know on the outer banks off the off the coast of of North Carolina you know mm-hmm. in in the wrong ocean except that we don't really know what constitutes yeah, the not, wrong ocean right. for a lot of these birds. Yeah, no, I I, I enjoyed that chapter very much because you know, I'm I'm in North Carolina and so that that is sort of my neck of the woods so to speak. Even though Hatteras is not really close to anywhere, it's not anyone's neck of the woods. It's it's out there. Um, but yeah, just because I know the people involved, and I know Brian and Kate and Ed Corey, who you name check in there, is is a really good friend of mine. Um, so that that was really fun. And yes, I I I share that uh, amazement with pelagic birding. The fact that. You never know what you're going to encounter out there. Uh, maybe it's a Tahiti petrel, but even the common species that you see, uh, sooty shearwater, Wilson storm petrel, are undergoing these amazing, amazing migrations, are doing these incredible things. And that's one of the things that I, I love about migration because the species that we are very familiar with are capable of incredible 
incredible feats as well. And that is uh, really fun to think about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, for one thing, from a kind of from a from a writer's perspective, mm-hmm. um, writing about migration is a total gimme. I mean, if you can't <laughs> write something compelling about bird yeah. migration, yeah, you should hang up your your typewriter at that point. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think we're all sort of aware of the ways in which you know global warming, climate change threatens to remake the world in ways that are unpredictable. And in the twenty years since Living on the Wind, the threat has only become more acute. How much of that is on your mind when you are visiting these places and writing about them? Because for me, um, it, it is like the sea that I, I swim in. It influences everything about how I think about the natural world. And I assume that it's it's similar to anyone who, who cares about the natural world and is paying attention to what's going on. Absolutely. It's it's absolutely un- unavoidable. It's omnipresent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that can, you know, let's face it, that can that can depress the hell out of you when you're out on, <laughs> yeah. a, on a beautiful spring day, you know, thinking about how the migration timing is is changing and how, you know, especially long distance um, tropical migrants, whether they're mm-hmm. neotropical or, or, or paleoarctic migrants are are falling farther and farther out of sync with the uh, the emergence of, of spring vegetation and the explosion of of insects and especially soft-bodied insects like caterpillars that they need to feed their chicks. And, you know, you look at cautionary tales like the pied flycatcher in Europe, whose populations have cratered in places like the Netherlands, um, going from one of the most, you know, one of the most abundant forest songbirds to, to increasingly uncommon because, you know, by the time they migrate back from Africa and across the Sahara and across the Mediterranean and set up a territory and find a mate and lay their eggs and hatch their chicks, the, the the springtime flush of caterpillars on which they depend to feed their chicks is gone, and so mm-hmm. you know their populations have dropped at like ninety percent in in parts of uh, in parts of mainland Europe, down by about fifty percent in the UK. You yeah. know we haven't seen that we haven't seen that level of collapse among North American migrant songbirds, in part probably because our songbirds don't have quite as arduous a journey; they don't have to mm-hmm. cross a desert and an ocean to get from. <laughs> Latin America or the Caribbean back up into into the temperate breeding zone, but you know, let's face it, a, a black-throated green warbler um, is coming back on average to the day at, on the timetable that it did a century ago. Even though spring has moved forward by, in some cases, by weeks, depending on mm-hmm. where in its breeding range you're talking about. And so, you know, with time, these birds are going to fall farther and farther out of sync and are going to run into the same problems we've seen in Europe. And if that were the only problem for them, that would be bad enough. But of course, with you know, with climate change, we're also getting significant changes in, um, you know, in 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 weather patterns and wind patterns. And you know, mm-hmm. I don't have to tell birders how important winds are for yeah. determining where birds go. And but it also, you know, winds winds don't just determine when birds migrate and under un, you know today versus tomorrow or the day after. But it also determines to an extent whether they're going to arrive where they're going in decent shape because headwinds and tailwinds are absolutely critical. And, you know, some of the modeling that's been done, uh, particularly at, at Cornell, looking at, um, you know, the, the, the likelihood, the likely changes in, in weather and weather and wind patterns on bird migration, you know, there's going to be winners and losers. There's going to be times of the year when the winds are actually going to like, likely become more favorable for certain birds following certain flyways in certain parts of the world. And other times of the year, they're going to get, they're going to get much harder and, and more challenging for these birds. Um, and, you know, when you think about it, Nate, you know, bird migration, especially the kind of long distance epic bird migrations that get us all excited, are so delicately balanced on 
distance and resource and wind and weather and physiology and just the physical the physiological um, limits of, of of birds and if you perturb any of those variables there's a chance that the whole house of cards comes down and so you know the sad part is the the migrations that are at the greatest and most significant risk the most immediate risk are the ones that are the most amazing and mm -hmm. and the phenomenon the extremes, that I would yeah. yeah the extremes the ones I'd hate to lose the most yeah yeah, you know, I go I go back and forth because I am, you know, sometimes buoyed by the abilities of birds to adapt to these sort of to these storms, you know, literal and figurative storms. Um, because I do see a lot of flexibility, but at the same time, I, you know, I worry so much about the welfare, the the fate of these sort of extreme migrations, as you say. I, right. I go back and forth all the time on it. Well, and so do I. Um, you yeah. know, I think it's 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 never a good bet to um to undervalue the 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 resiliency of nature, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think you know one of one of my other great passions uh, are the Appalachian Mountains, mm, and oh, you know that. that is a that is a, a badly bruised ecosystem that has proven yeah. itself to be incredibly resilient over time, and you know and and birds have a lot going for them. I would feel a little bit better if we weren't putting so much pressure on birds in so many other ways yeah. in terms of habitat loss and window collisions and tower strikes and cats and agrochemicals yeah. and all the rest of this stuff, all this additive, um, all this additive mortality on top of migration, which we know is the most dangerous time of the year in a bird's annual cycle. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, I don't, I don't count birds out. I mean, they, they have proven themselves to be phenomenally adaptable, you know, ever since the asteroid hit 65 million years <laughs> mm -hmm. ago. Um, you know, they've, they've taken over the world and I, and I, 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 keeping my fingers crossed for them yeah uh, on a lighter note perhaps uh was that was there a species or experience that you enjoyed working on or, or writing about more than others oh man that's that's hard to say um yeah it's like choosing the, a favorite child it sure. really it really <laughs> is i mean i mean in, in one respect where where the new book is is very much a uh, a continuation of what i was writing about living on the wind um, it was just a really sweet story to be able to tell is the the story of the Swainson's Hawks in the Butte Valley mm, of Northern mm -hmm. California. Um, you know, one of the one of the I think one of the most compelling aspects of for me of writing Living on the Wind was having an opportunity in the late 1990s to spend part of the winter in Argentina with a group of um, U.S. and Canadian and, and Argentinian scientists that were at that point, desperately trying to save Swainson's hawks from pesticide poisoning. And they did so um, with remarkable speed and remarkable success. Mm -hmm. And a few years ago, I ran into um, a guy named uh, Chris Venom, who's a grad student working in the Butte Valley in Northern California, you know, sort of in the scientific lineage of Brian Woodbridge, who was the scientist that I got to know in the 1990s um, in Argentina, who had become aware of the situation in Argentina because of the work mm -hmm. he was doing in the Butte Valley. And so I had a chance a couple of years ago to, uh, to head back up to the Butte Valley for what was basically this big reunion of scientists who've been for the last 40 years studying the, the Swainson's Hawks of the Butte Valley and to celebrate the fact that these, this population had completely recovered from the pesticide poisonings in the 1990s and, you know, and, to, and to work with a bird that, that has a lot going for it, in, you know, even in, this, um, you know, in, in the Anthropocene here in the, yeah. in the in the human yeah we talk about the the resiliency and the flexibility yeah. of birds swainson's hawk is a really great example of that absolutely absolutely and to and you know and to 
you know, and, and basically to, you know, to kind of hang out with the great, great grandkids of the, <laughs> of the Swainson's Hawks that I was, you know, I was hoping to trap and, and tag and study down in Argentina um, 20 years ago. It was a, it was a, that was a pretty, that was a pretty cool event. It must've been fun to write a lot about the old world, as you say, uh, the, the first book was about um, a lot about the, the Western hemisphere. And uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the Cyprus chapter uh, mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons. One, it has sort of an international super spy thing going for it, which I found very compelling. And, and also because um, of the weird ways in which, you know, history kind of plays across bird populations. Um, the fact that Cyprus is essentially, you know, split between a Greek side and a Turkish side and the, you know, the, the, the feelings across the border are sort of mixed to say the, say the least and how the different way of putting it. (laughs) Yeah. And how the, how the bird conservation, you know, the way they approach bird conservation on either side of the, of the demilitarized zone, uh, is sort of different. And the fact that there's, you know, British colonialist aspect to it, it, there's a lot going on in that chapter. And ultimately it's about, you know, the unregulated or very lightly regulated trapping of birds for for food trapping of songbirds for food mm-hmm. yeah and it's and it's part of a what i think to many north americans would it comes as a real surprise the um, mm-hmm. the yeah. profound impact of illegal bird trapping and illegal, illegal bird poaching across the mediterranean basin and i guess you know people would probably not be surprised to hear that you know 5.4 million birds are killed every year in egypt and Almost yeah. three million in Syria and two and a half million in Lebanon, because those are seem like lawless, you know, war torn places. Mm-hmm. But the single most dangerous place in in the Mediterranean for a songbird is Italy. Five point <laughs> six million songbirds killed illegally in Italy every year for the pot. Which is nuts because you look at Italy and you think about it in terms of geography, and that's got to be a, at its best was probably like a migration hotspot. It's a long peninsula that stretches south and makes the jump over the Mediterranean short. My God, imagine Absolutely. what that place was like years ago. Absolutely. Years Absolutely. Ago. But, but as you say, the island of Cyprus in the, in the eastern Mediterranean just south of, of Turkey, um, you know, in terms of like both a per capita basis and a, a land area basis, well, in the words of one of the conservationists I talked to, it's the it's the black hole of the Mediterranean for bird for bird poaching. At one at one time, about ten million songbirds a year were being illegally killed in Cyprus. And this is this is not a subsistence hunt. This is not something mm-hmm. people are doing to put food on the table for their families, um, as is the case in France and Italy and all these other places where where these birds are being killed. It's mostly being done out of a sense of tradition and for. Um, in, in these days in Cyprus, a very high-end dish called ambilapulia, which is traditionally um, um, fat black caps, uh, Eurasian black caps in their fall migration, are, are, were caught with lime sticks or mist nets and plucked and um, sautéed in oil and sea salt whole with the head still on and all mm-hmm. the guts inside. And you get a little plate of these of these roasted songbirds and you pick them up by the head and you pop this piping hot thing in your mouth and you you, you bite off the head with a snap and crunch the rest of it up, and um, you know it, it's 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 a luxury item today. It's 120, yeah. 140 euros for a plate of umbilipulia, um, if you can find a place that's going to serve it to you under the table because it's it's technically illegal. Well, as you say, you know, there's you've got this incredibly complex political situation in Cyprus where, you know, it's the Turkish North and the and the Cypriot Republic of Cyprus in the south. You have these two big British military bases that go back to the days when Cyprus was a, a British protectorate. 
Um, the British military is not popular in the Republic of Cyprus. And mm -hmm. so when you, you began to have kind of industrial scale bird poaching occurring on these on these bases, especially one of the bases in particular uh, at, at Cape Pila, which again is a peninsula that faces south toward Africa where the birds gather on their southward migration. Um, when, the, when the poaching really ramped up there, the, the Brits kind of turned a blind eye to it because um, they, and, and just to give you an example of the scale of the poaching, the poachers have planted hundreds and hundreds of acres of non-native eucalyptus trees and mm. run literally like hundreds of kilometers of irrigation pipe to these groves in order to create more attractive habitat to draw these migrant birds into their, to their, you know, hundreds of meters of mist nets that they were setting up. Yeah, it'd be amazing. It'd be a, an amazing conservation store if it wasn't for the fact that they were trapping these birds indiscriminately. <laughs> well, and, and also the fact that in order to, to, to plant this eucalyptus, they were destroying um, a, a really rare native plant community mm -hmm. um, of, of low scrub on that, on that part of the island of Cyprus. So yeah, it was kind of a, an ecological disaster from start to finish. Now, fortunately, in recent years, there's been a lot of pressure on the British government to crack down on this. And when I was over there um, two or three years ago in the course of writing this book, um, they had made enormous progress. The, and I, you know, I, I got to spend some time, as you alluded to, um, out in the field with the, uh, the British sovereign base um, security forces, which are, are for the most part um, uh, Cypriot, um, Cypriot police officers. Mm -hmm. um, I was careful with, uh, with many of them to, to, to mask their identities. Um, it's the only time in my life I've been asked what size bulletproof vest I take. Um, <laughs> extra large in case anybody's wondering. And two, if you don't mind. Um, <laughs> but, um, but actually, you know, it was, you know, disappointing from a journalistic standpoint, um, encouraging from a conservation standpoint, there, they, there wasn't a whole lot going on. They had a couple yeah. of, a couple of active sites that they knew about that they were keeping under surveillance. Um, there's a couple of uh, wildlife crime specialists from the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds that come to Cyprus every year and work on the bases doing, you know, like they're out there crawling around in sniper ghillie suits with surveillance cameras and like video. The, the SBA police force uses um, drones with infrared cameras on mm -hmm. to collect video evidence. Um, and they've really pretty much shut down um, most of this big scale bird trapping on the bases. But, you know, it's a little bit like squeezing a balloon. You know, you put the pressure yeah. here and it pops out somewhere else. There's far less effective from, from what I could see and from what um, activists with groups like um, Bird Life Cyprus were telling me, there's far less effective um, enforcement in the, in the Republic of Cyprus as a whole. And what's going on up in the north of Cyprus and in the, in the Turkish controlled north is pretty much anyone's guess. It seems like a lot of the hmm. large scale poaching activity is moving into that part of the country. So yeah. um, it's, it's still a significant conservation problem, not just in Cyprus, but across the Mediterranean. Um, you know, if the Europeans are not able to get a grip on this, they're going to lose some of these species of birds like Ortolan buntings in France. You know, um, you know, this is another Another case of this, you know, this lauded French culinary tradition of catching a catching an ortolan bunting in the fall and blinding it and then force feeding it until it's enormously fat, um, drowning it in a in a vat of brandy and then roasting it whole. Um, Francois Mitterrand, the, the former president of France, as he lay on his deathbed, asked for ortolan bunting as his final <laughs> meal and then refused all further food until he died. Even even though you know, this was a wildly illegal thing for him to do. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a crazy story. And I, I do think it is underappreciated 
in uh, in North America. Um, and you know, thanks to a lot of organizations like um, you know Society of Protection of Nature in Israel and the Champions of the Flyway movement, uh, there's been a little bit more attention paid to um, to the trapping, legal trapping around the Mediterranean. But yeah, it's uh, I remember when I first learned about it. It is it is it is truly staggering. The, what is going on and, and the extent of the destruction of the of those birds and I, I really do hope that the, the European Union gets a handle on it they certainly need to absolutely and you know and before we North Americans get too high on uh, too up on a <laughs> yeah. high horse we yeah. did the same thing up until yeah. about a hundred years ago I mean we were one of the reasons that um, the National Audubon Society was founded and the reason it started its junior Audubon Club program in the early years of the 20th century was to convince American Southerners not to shoot millions of robins every year for the pot. I mean, um, you, know, you could you could walk into a marketplace in a place like Brooklyn in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century and find flickers and cedar waxwings and red winged blackbirds and robins and blue jays and you know seaside sparrows for God's sake and least least sandpipers and which it, evidently do not taste very good. Yes, I, so there's a, there's a <laughs> remarkable book that was published in the uh, in the eighteen sixties that kind of goes through every conceivable kind of food that you can find in the markets of, of New York and Baltimore and Philadelphia, including all of the, all of the songbirds. And, and interestingly, all of them are compared to robins. Robin was kind of the, it was the, the benchmark for, um, you know, for, for, uh, for, you know, assessing the gustatory value of these species. <laughs> yeah. One of the, one of the many amazing uh, little tidbits of information uh, in this book, Scott Widensall is a naturalist researcher and the author of a world on the wing the a global odyssey of migratory birds that is out now. Thank you so much for your time and, and congratulations again. It, it is a great book. I would absolutely encourage uh, listeners to go out and check it out. It, it's, a, it's a wonderful read. Well, thanks so much, Nate. It's a real pleasure talking to you. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you like what we do here, please consider supporting the podcast by joining the ABA. You get a lot more than just peace of mind. You get magazines, you get discounts to our partners like Beauty Books and the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. You can get information about all the memberships available at aba.org slash join. I want to make some shout outs this week. I have quite a few. It's been two weeks. Um, thanks to Teresa Worrell of Baltimore, Maryland, Lynn Kendall of Cincinnati, Ohio, Richard Schurl of Holliston, Massachusetts, Julie Lighty and Severino de Agostino of Camarillo, California, Greg Harrington of Seattle, Washington, Peter Stoltz of Denver, Colorado, Christy Lee of Pewaukee, Wisconsin, Wayne Clark of Santa Rosa, California, Stephanie Sinden of Simcoe, Ontario, Eric Warren of Longmeadow, Massachusetts, Stephen Rabb of Issaquah, Washington, David Klebanoff of Washington, D.C., Kevin Rollwing of Brooklyn, New York, Judith Millard of Kyle, Texas, Kimberly Monto of Pacifica, California, Greg and Chris DeBron of Nampa, Idaho, Brock Moran of Berwyn, Illinois, John Murray of Norfolk, Virginia, and Lynn Cornell and Michael Melford of Rochester, Minnesota, who note further, I love the podcast. Thank you so much. All of whom recently joined the ABA noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you all so much for that. I really, really appreciate it. If, hey, if you enjoy the show, you're still listening, you want to do one more thing, head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a rating or review. We certainly appreciate it. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who enjoys the bird names for birds soap opera, but finds that it pales in comparison to the one about the terminally ill birder chasing new birds in every episode, when life or to live. Oof. Technical production is by John Lowry, who makes sure to be home every weekday at two to catch the drama surrounding that one immature northern cardinal in the middle of that weird molt where they actually go bald. You know, the young and the crestless. Yeah. 
Additional help from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who spend a lot of time discussing the latest episode of that show about the life and times of one of the few shorebirds found on six of the seven continents, a very cosmopolitan as the world turns stones. You can find us online at aba.org on the various social medias as American Birding Association or ABA. Sometimes I go back to my eBird checklist and scroll through all the corvids I've seen, magpies, crows, ravens. There have been so many. I encourage you to do the same. Such a diverse family. So dramatic. It's this little exercise I like to call, and I'm really sorry for this, Jays of our lives. Questions, comments, corrections come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. See you next week.